It is good to see you all, good to be together. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, and so if you could go ahead and find your place in the Bibles there, uh, we will get started in this text in just a moment, and I imagine that many of you, if you've been reading ahead, I've heard from quite a few of you, uh, in fact, that if you've been reading ahead in the Bible, you probably came in this morning wondering uh, where I was going to be going with this particular text. Uh, because this is not something often talked about, something not often discussed or preached. And so several of you have already reached out going, brother, praying for you as you dive into this particular passage this morning. Several of you have probably been wondering, are we really about to go there on a Sunday morning? I just had a great cup of coffee, a great breakfast. I had a great Saturday. Football season is upon us. And now we are really going to dive into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians um, may not be the best start to the week. Are we really about to hit that topic? And I just want to tell you that I'm, I'm thankful for you because several of you guys have actually reached out and have asked the question, why are we walking through this book? And I want to tell you guys, I am glad that you asked, and this is not me calling out anybody or singling out anybody. I am thankful uh, for you guys who have asked that question because by God's grace, it has served as a reminder to me uh, that we really need to remember why we are walking through 1 Corinthians together at this particular particular time. So let's just, if I could, do a recap, if you will, before we even get into our text. So if you remember, and you were with us at the beginning of this year, uh, starting in the first Sunday of January, um, we actually started the year in the book of Ruth, where we learned of God's provision, and we learned how God will always provide what we called daily bread, even when God may not be presently seen, we knew and saw through the book of Ruth that God was daily present and providing for his people. Now, if you remember from there, we moved from the book of Ruth uh, to the, the book of Malachi and the prophecies of Malachi, where we saw how our great God who loved his people, even in the midst of their, their brokenness, it was God who loved his people so much that he was the one who kept his promises to the people even when they fell short of their covenant commitment back to him. So we saw how God remained faithful while the people found themselves unfaithful. And we even saw how God, in keeping his promises constantly and consistently through the book of Malachi, reminded us of his covenant grace, which has been a phrase that has been prayed over and talked about and asked about on multiple occasions and one that we, we still talk and pray about together is this phrase covenant grace. Now here's what happened. We got done with, the, with Malachi and it led us right into Easter uh, where we were actually in 1 Corinthians 15. So you kind of got a teaser of, of what was coming and at Easter and we actually saw God's grace really put on full display to the, through the power of the cross the hope that is now found in Jesus Christ and the glorious resurrection. And then by the grace of God, we saw that the story did not just end at the cross, that there was a resurrection. And then there, oh, by the way, also is an ascension. And so naturally, here's where we are. In seeing all of these things played out, the provision of God, the faithfulness of God, and the hope that is now found in Christ, in believing in all these things as believers in Jesus Christ, and in believing in the one who has provided for us, and the one who has sustained us, and the one who has kept his promises, we have now come to a point where we recognize that as believers in Christ, we have been called to place our full faith and trust and hope in him, and thus as believers who've now placed your full faith, trust, and hope in Him, we now realize our call to live lives 
set apart. Or better yet, we're called to holiness. And so we come to 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians about the calling and the challenge of living out holiness. So, yes, like the Corinthian Christians, as we are seeing today in a modern world, we are consumed with the teachings of the world. And so we have come to 1 Corinthians as a faith family to be reminded that we as believers have a standard as those who have been called out by God and thus set apart. And that standard is found in the Word of God itself. So, I say all that to say as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians, and you'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. There's going to be weeks where Paul is going to address some very uncomfortable topics and maybe even some unfamiliar topics that we've not really delved into before as believers. But the reality is this. If they're in the Bible, they shouldn't be uncomfortable to us. Because as believers who love God, who knows that God loves us, we should know what we believe about these particular topics. And that belief should ultimately not be founded upon what someone has told us, but rather what the Word of God says for itself. So, if someone asks you this question, why are you at a church that is walking through 1 Corinthians? Why are you walking through that book? I'm going to give you two simple answers. One, because it's in the Bible. Why not? Like, why not? Why skip it? It's there. Just read it. Second answer is this. Because if we're believers in Christ, and we say that we are, we have a standard. We have a, a call, a challenge. And that call and challenge is to be, to be set apart. It's, it's a call to, to holiness. And as believers in Christ, that is what we should strive for each and every day. Now, looking at the text, Paul is beginning a section that we're going to begin to address this morning. And what Paul is addressing is questions that have come from the Corinthian Christians directly to Paul that he is now going to respond to. So what you're about to see Paul do in this letter from chapter 7, weaving all the way through to chapter 16, is Paul answering questions that have been given to him by the Corinthian Christians, whether in person or by way of letter. And so what we're going to see is his response. And as we get into chapter 7, we're going to see Paul really address what can best be described as some severe self-discipline issues that may have been a result from either the Stoic or the, the Cynic influences that have ultimately infiltrated the local church. And all of this is now centered on the belief for the Corinthian Christians that they have come to Paul with the belief that all Christians should refrain from sexual relationships, whether you're married or not. And so Paul opens chapter 7 by speaking to matters of marriage. And as we're going to see next week, he's going to turn his attention from the matters of marriage to matters of divorce. And here is Paul's goal for addressing this issue. He wanted to remind the Corinthian Christians that since they have been ransomed by God, since they now belong to God in and through Christ, they should serve and honor Christ in whatever relationship status they find themselves in, whether married or whether single. Both are a gift from God and should be 
treated as such. So let's go ahead and get into our text and see how Paul addresses these matters of marriage. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me in 1 Corinthians. We're going to begin reading in chapter 7 in verse 1. And once you have found your place in the Word and you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. This is Paul writing again to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the will and the grace of God, Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. Now, again, I recognize we are getting into a very serious subject. And I want to just remind you that in grace, I'm going to attempt to walk through this subject with you, recognizing we have little ears in the room. And I'm going to ask that if you're married, tune in for a moment. But also if you're single and you're living with the giftedness of singleness as well, tune in as well, because there is something for everyone right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the Corinthian Christians, just to kind of set the scene for you, have really stumbled upon some pretty bad teaching that was now calling them and causing them to abstain from intimacy and sexual relationships uh, within the confines of their own marriage. So what you have going on is, is husbands and wives who were married and committed to one another were now abstaining from one another and saying that what they were doing was right because they had set themselves apart for God and therefore they were honoring God. And so Paul in this moment teaches them that this belief is actually bad because ultimately for the married couple, it could lead them to more sexual immorality, which is what Paul had just addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You see, since Christian couples, married couples, were depriving one another, they were now opening themselves up to temptation, opening themselves up to Satan's attacks, which ultimately may result in them sinning in a way that would ultimately damage their marriage permanently. And so what Paul does is he actually teaches on this and helps correct this teaching for the Corinthian Christians. But at the same time, he's going to make a concession that abstaining for a certain time may be good, as long as that time is agreed upon. However, as people who are in a covenant relationship together in marriage, as people who desire to be in relationship, who who desire intimacy, Paul says that we have to do all that we can to protect our spouses, 
which means we have to do all that we can to protect our marriages. Then what we're going to see is Paul's going to close by calling upon singles to to remain as he is. However, he says if you begin to burn with desire, that he teaches it's actually better for you to marry so that you don't sin against the body. Again, what we just learned about one chapter before. Remember our text from last week. So let's just go ahead and, and jump into this text. And what I want us to see is really two points of instruction that Paul gives on matters of marriage. The first point being this. To the married, Paul says, do not deprive one another. Look with me in, in verses 1-7 through seven here. Notice how Paul opens by, by restating what their question was, or better yet, what their concern was. In verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters by which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now again, notice how Paul acknowledges the letter that he has now received or the word that he has received and what it is that the Corinthian Christians are now practicing. And so what we have here is is really the evidence of strict self-discipline that Paul believes may be leading the Corinthian Christians into the sin of sexual immorality that they are now struggling with. Now, I would imagine at this point, if this statement was actually being made by singles, for singles, Paul would probably agree with them and say, yes, you should not encounter any physical, intimate, sexual relationship with a spouse outside of marriage. You shouldn't partake of that at all. However, since this was married people who were following this rule, Paul says, no, I completely disagree with you. For you have made a commitment to one another. Now, Paul explains a little bit more about his disagreement in the following verse in verse 2 as he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You see, Paul was concerned that this extended period of abstaining would ultimately lead Christians into some sort of sexual sin. So, What Paul does is he encourages the married couples to engage one another in physical relationships. He encourages them to engage in intimacy in order to avoid the temptation of sin. Now I want us to pay attention here because Paul does not privilege husbands over wives. Nor does Paul privilege wives over husbands. But rather, he teaches, when it comes to the confines of marriage, the covenant commitment made between a man and a woman in marriage, both husbands and wives are equally responsible to carry out this directive. In other words, as married Christian couples today, we cannot nor should not expect our spouses to be mind readers. We cannot only operate on our schedules when it comes to intimacy. We have another person to think about. As married couples, we have to be willing to talk about intimacy, to talk about physical relationship, to be able to to work together in understanding intimacy between a husband and wife. Why? Because it takes two to make the relationship work. Or if you're a fan of 80s and 90s music, it takes two to make a thing go right. We had a whole song about it. Coming back to the text, 
we see Paul then give a great explanation about what he means when it comes to both husbands and wives having equal responsibility and, and why he believes husband and wives have equal responsibility when it comes to intimacy. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, again, Let's be grown-ups here for a second. I believe that there are some terms in this passage that we do not need to define. So for the sake of clarity, we're going to move on. However, there are a couple phrases that I do want to point out to us today. The first one being this phrase, uh, where it says, uh, the wife should give, or the husband should give to his wife. And then it says, and the wife to her husband. And then that phrase ends with this phrase, conjugal rights. The phrase I'm looking at is should give and how it ends with the word rights at the end of that passage. Now this particular language being used by Paul is one of payment and obligation. In other words, Paul is saying to the married couple, each spouse should repay what the other is owed. Each spouse is bound, or better yet, indebted to be available to the other. Now again, before we start to get in our feelings for a moment and we get upset with this language, let's understand a little bit of context of what Paul is doing here. You see, Paul is teaching that both the wife and the husband are to be available to one another, and neither one can opt out and use the excuse that they're going to abstain because they have now given themselves to God, which was what was happening amongst the Corinthian Christians. You see, for us today as married couples, we can't use excuses to withhold intimacy from one another. Now, this is important. Because we live in a society and a world today that is driven by sexuality. The world today teaches us that sexuality is where your power lies. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. Watch a commercial, particularly a perfume commercial. I have never sprayed anything on myself that made me look like some of those people. But that is what we are trying to drive. Paul would say at this point, no, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not to weaponize our intimacy. We are not to weaponize our physical relationships against our spouse. We are not to withhold from one another because we are mad or because we're too tired or because we don't like the way we look or because we're just not feeling it. Again, some of you guys are going to hear this today and you're going to get angry. And you're going to say, wait a minute, I don't like where this is going. This feels very one-sided. I feel seen. I feel attacked. And I feel like what you're saying is I am only supposed to meet my spouse's needs whenever my spouse needs it. Well, if that's you today, I want to call your attention to verse 4. Continue reading. And I want to call your attention especially to the word authority. Notice how... Paul teaches us that wives belong to husbands 
And husbands now belong to wives. Paul was not saying this as a a, a burden to put on couples, but rather he is drawing on the beauty that is found in the mutuality of the marriage relationship. Paul actually even draws this out for us by telling the Corinthian Christians that, that wives now have authority over their husband's body. So let's just kind of, let's play this out for a moment, okay? In light of what Paul is saying. So, so how does this play out in, in marriage? How do I now owe my spouse my body? You may, you may sit there and look at your spouse today and be like, how do I owe that guy my body? I don't think so, you know? Or you may be looking, husbands, you may be looking at your wives and, and think of the same thing, but I want us to remember that at the beginning of this passage, we talked about the language being one of indebtedness and obligation to one another. So that naturally leads us to ask this question, how are we now indebted? How do we now owe each other as a married couple? Well, that answer is found in how we as a married couple are leading one another, which is discussed by Paul to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, when you submit to your husband as to the Lord, you are following his leadership. You are showing a care and a grace and a love and an honor to your husband to which you are now owed a debt. A debt of intimacy. Ephesians 5 continues and it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Husbands, when you sacrifice and serve your wife, Not a one and done, by the way. This is a consistently, constantly, faithfully sacrificing and serving your wife. Presenting her without blemish before the Lord. Meaning meaning that you are presenting her as one who has been purified and washed according to the word before the Lord. Then a debt is owed in intimacy to you. Now let me unpack how all this works together. If intimacy, married couples, if intimacy is not happening in your marriage, then I would dare to say, maybe your leadership is out of order. Women, married women, are your husbands loved? Do they know that they are loved? Not the way you think they ought to be loved, but do they know you love them? Do they know that they are cared for? Are you submitting to them? Or, or, or like the Corinthian Christian women at times, would, are you doing your own thing whenever and however without even considering what he would think, without even considering his leadership? And oh, by the way, to clarify, ladies, I'm not talking about your husband being the spiritual leader over what you should eat for dinner. That is not a biblical matter. Are you faithfully following his leadership and encouraging him to be the spiritual leader of your home? Husbands, the married men in your room, in the room, let me ask you this question. Are you serving your wives well? Are you sacrificing for your wives? Are you encouraging and caring for your wife according to the word of God, by the word of God? Are you caring for her soul? 
Or do you commit your entire lives to work and when you come home, your wife barely gets your leftovers? Are you faithfully leading in your home? Or do you come home and you find yourself entrapped to things that don't matter like video games? i got to have my time before I deal with my family. Men, you're not leading faithfully if that's what you're doing. If our wives are getting our leftovers, then we are not faithfully leading. And fellas, let me say to you, if you're not faithfully serving and sacrificing for your wife, encouraging her according to the word, caring for her soul, then let me say this to you. If you're not doing those things, then you cannot expect your wife to simply lie down to whatever command you want to give her, whether in the home or in the bedroom. It doesn't work that way. I mean, here's the truth. As intimacy increases, it is easier when we are fulfilling the God-given authority that Jesus Christ has given to both men and women, and that is this mutual responsibility. We read about it in Colossians earlier. We see it in Ephesians 5, and we see how this plays out as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, let's get into verse 5. Paul continues. He says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. Now, Paul's words here actually parallel to what we've already uh, read about if you've read through Exodus before, especially Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, when Paul says, or no, not Paul, but when the, when the Bible says, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and then the third most important thing, or her marital rights. You see, when you read Exodus chapter 21, and then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see what Paul is saying, we clearly see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, married couples are being taught not to deny one another of their marital rights, except, according to Paul, for an agreed-upon time that is limited. In other words, to understand Paul's point, we've got to see the context of what Paul is saying here. You see, in, in Paul's day, Jews, especially Jewish men during his day, could and would often refrain from intimacy without the consent of their wife. And what Paul says to these men is that is not okay. Now, Paul does consent to a time apart for the purpose of prayer, but he still stresses that the time should be both limited and agreed upon by each spouse. In other words, notice married couples, how Paul teaches us when it comes to intimacy, there's a level of communication that has to happen as well. There's a level of, of expectation that is now communicated between the husband and wife. But then Paul continues from there because even after the consent, this limited time set apart for the purpose of prayer, he says this, Paul says, but then come together again. And then he answers why? He says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, Paul knew the Corinthian Christians. Paul knew their struggles. He'd already written about their struggles. Thus, he says to them, listen, be apart for a limited time as long as it's agreed upon. 
However, resume mutual intimacy so that you do not fall into sin or temptation, as we said last week, and thus turn your attention and your intimacy to prostitutes. Don't allow your season of abstaining to cause you to fall into temptation. Paul continues from there in verses 6 and 7. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now again, Paul gives the concession of of being apart for a time. And he says, commit that time to, to praying, praying for one another, praying together. However, Paul says, abstaining from intimacy is not something that he sees as necessary nor required for the married couple. And then we get to verse 7, and Paul's, we see Paul's desire for people to be like him. He says, listen, my desire for you is to really remain single, but, but here's the reality. If you remain single, you probably wouldn't have these additional struggles. However, Paul says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. I want us to pay attention to how Paul views marriage and singleness. Paul views them as gifts given by God. So if you're a married person in this room, and I don't know where your marriage is, it might be great right now, praise be to God. It might be a struggle right now, praise be to God. Your marriage is a gift. It's a gift given by God. Don't take it lightly, don't take it for granted. You may be single in this room right now. And if you're single in this room, understand this, your singleness is a gift given by God. It's not meant to be a burden. It's not meant to be a trouble. It's not not meant for you to say, woe is me, I can't wait for 10, 15, 20 years from now when I can be married. No, see it as a gift right now. If you've been widowed in this room, then my prayer for you is that as you look back upon your marriage, that you would be reminded of the beauty of your marriage and the gift that was given to you by God. And then I pray that you would encourage other married couples with that reminder and that gift as well. You see, for married couples in the room, Paul wants us to see that our physical relationship, our intimacy is one that is designed as being equally responsible. And yet, by God's grace, we've been given separate roles, and we thank God for that. But the reality is this. If we are fulfilling those biblical roles, then ultimately it should lead us to see intimacy with our spouse as mutually beneficial. And as we have said, if it is not, then something may be off in the way we are serving, caring, and loving one another in the way God describes marriage according to Ephesians chapter 5. So married couples... You've been gifted with the gift of marriage. Seek what God has for you in this beautiful gift that you have now been given. But here's the beauty of Paul. He doesn't just stop there. Paul talks about married couples, but then we get to our second point and we see Paul talking to singles. And so here it is, our second instruction to the singles. Verse 8 and 9. If passion burns within you, then get married. It's really that simple. That's what Paul says. Now, let's, 
define terms here before we jump into this. Now, when Paul speaks of passion in this particular text, he's talking about the sexual desires and intimacy that burns within us. As John Calvin described it, it's a burning that cannot be quenched. Now, again, don't mishear what Paul is trying to say here in verses 8 and 9 and what we're trying to teach. And we're not saying that you should marry the first person you see. However, what we are saying is this. When you're in a relationship that's drawing you closer to the Lord, before you take that next step towards physical intimacy, just go ahead and get married. And this is why we say that. Because too many couples right now are looking at each other going, I love you, you love me. Let's just be intimate together because we're practically married. No, you're not. You're either married or you're not. There is no practically. So make the commitment. Now, some would say to me, Pastor, that is awful advice. Shouldn't they get to know one another first? I would completely agree. You should get to know one another. Paul would agree with that. You should definitely get to know one another. But here's the reality. You don't have to be in a physically intimate relationship in order to get to know another person. You should get to know their heart, their mind. That other stuff is is just a benefit. Paul says, listen, if that's you and you think that's what you need to do, then here's the reality. It would just be better for you to avoid that altogether and remain single. Like, just run from it. Remember that fleeing last week? Just run from it. Verse 8, look at what Paul says. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, Paul, when speaking to the unmarried and the widows, he is generally speaking to all those who are unmarried. Now, there are widows mentioned here, but let's, let's pay attention to the context of who Paul's talking to. Paul, in his day, was actually talking to the women who were young, who got married, who outlived their husbands, and often found themselves as young widows. Remember when we got into this, when we were walking through Ruth together? That's kind of what, what Paul has in mind at this point, all right? So, when Paul points to the gift of being single... He says, listen, when you are single, that's actually a gift from God because it's actually easier as a single person to be more focused on the mission of the Lord. It is easier as a single person to be more focused on what it is that God has for you versus being married and having to think of someone else. So I want to say to you this morning, if you're here and you're single and you desire marriage right now, Can I just encourage you for a moment? Don't miss the blessing and the beauty of being single. Don't miss the blessing and the beauty of all that can be done for the Lord. Now, please don't hear this from a man who's married. I am not saying to you, now being married, I wish I could go back and be single. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. I'm that single guy that had that burning desire, and for whatever reason, God graced me with a woman who knows mercy and forgiveness better than anyone I know. Okay, and I am thankful for that. So don't hear that. However, what I want you to hear, singles, is this. See your singleness as an opportunity to faithfully follow and focus on the Lord for what He has for you. Because God has a plan for you even in the midst of the relationship or lack thereof that you find yourself in. Now, Verse 9, Paul says, according to the word, but if they cannot exercise self-control, speaking of singles, 
If they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now again, I want us to understand something. When Paul is speaking of self-control here, he's not necessarily thinking sin. He's thinking a little bit more, more clearer than that, a little more detailed than that. He's thinking of the control and the discipline that comes from being an athlete. Okay? So he's not just sitting there saying to you, hey, if you're single and you're struggling with, with sexual thoughts and desires, you should just go get married. No, no, no. He's also talking to you, hey, if you're single and you're, you're struggling with the thought of, of married, being married, if you're single and you're struggling with the thought of, of having children and you're already thinking about that desire, he's like, no, no, you've got you to have more self-control than that. You've got to be more disciplined. You've got to be a, a little more focused. However, Paul says this, that if you have these strong desires... That if you have these strong desires, not only for, for, for marriage and future and for intimacy, and it's burning within you. Remember John Calvin said it, a burning that cannot be quenched. And it's, it's a burning that comes from the desire to be married. And, and you have the option to get married. You have found a good mate, a good spouse. Then here's the reality. Paul says, go for it. Go for it. In fact, he says marriage should be preferred over burning with lust and sexual desire that leads to sexual immorality. Again, for Paul, singleness was still preferred. However, as was often the case in, in many circumstances, if marriage is the more ideal plan, then Paul says, hey, that's okay. Get married. Get married. Again, singles. I want you to hear Paul's words carefully. Being single is not a curse. It's a blessing. Being single is a gift from God. It's not to be taken lightly. Just as, just as marriage is a gift from God, there are so many people around you right now who would tell you marriage is a gift from God. Okay? They'll tell you that. There are widows sitting around you that would tell you marriage is a gift from God. But also with that, understand this, singleness itself is a gift from God. And so grow in your singleness. Enjoy the opportunities that God gives you as you faithfully serve as a single. But know this, life is very complex. Desires can and will begin to burn within you. And if this, those desires grow, the desire for marriage, the desire for family, the desire for intimacy, then here's what you need to do with that new desire. Begin to pray for your spouse. Pray for that future spouse. Pray for them daily. Pray for yourself that you would be a faithful and biblical spouse. And then pray, Ephesians 5, that even before you marry, God would prepare you to be the spouse that can honor your husband or honor your wife in a way that brings glory to God. And then remind yourself, whether single or married, your relationship in singleness, your relationship in marriage is an incredible gift from God. And be thankful for it. Because God is now fulfilling His plan, His purpose, and His desire for you. Don't lose sight of that. You see, Paul desired for the Corinthian Christians to live faithfully in what God had for them. So Paul says, listen, if you're single, it's a gift. Enjoy the gift. But if desire begins to burn, then seek marriage. Pray for marriage. Pray for your spouse. Pray for yourself. 
to the married. Paul says, listen, your marriage is a gift. He says, not, not what I desire, but your marriage is a gift. Enjoy the gift of your spouse. Do not deprive your spouse of what is owed to them and what they owe to you. So whether in intimacy or, or even any aspect of your life, this is true, this is true even beyond intimacy in our relationships, in any aspect of our lives, our goal as married couples should be this, to never deprive our spouses of what God has told them is now theirs. So faithfully love, care, sacrifice, and serve one another as married couples for this glorifies God in our marriage. I'm going to tell you, Paul gave us a hard text. But Paul wanted to make sure that as the Corinthian Christians continued to grow in holiness, they understood two things. One, as a married couple, your marriage is a gift. Never take it for granted. Two, for the singles, your singleness is a gift. Never take it for granted. And where God has you in this moment, glorify Him in this stage of life. Now, I want to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And speaking of married life, said it this way. And man, if anybody could say it, he could. Simply said, he said, married life is not all sugar. Plain and simple. But he wasn't done there. Married life is not all sugar. But grace in the heart will keep most of the sours. I think Spurgeon's point was the same as Paul's. Love well. Serve one another. Sacrifice for each other. Enjoy intimacy together as God has ordained it. For what you have is a gift. So fill your relationship with the grace that has been shown to you. To God be the glory for your singleness. To God be the glory for our marriages. May He be praised as we seek to lift one another up. Let's pray together. May your glory know.